Earlier in the last session, we've seen that this verse 8 forms an inclusio with chapter 1, verse 2. So it's like an envelope around the teachings of the teacher. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities. And therefore, I think the right way to go is to say, also on the basis of the content, the next section starts at verse 9, and the NRSV has a major break there, epilogue. It says you can't always go by that because those are also human judgments, sometimes fallible. Um, but in any event, I think it clearly shows that verse 9 begins a new unit. Literary features. The, the editor begins verse 9 with besides. How does that read in the NIV? Not only. Okay. The Hebrew word there is wyoter, a word that he will repeat in verse 12, which in my Bible reads beyond this. And the NIV? Verse 12? Yeah, just before that. Or doesn't it translate the wyoter? Verse 12 here reads, of anything beyond these, my child, beware. Now, how does verse 12 read? Just be warned, my son. Oh, it does? In your NIV? No, that's fine. I need that wyoter. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so you see that it's being translated with two different words in English but it's the same word there, which indicates that uh, this section consists of two subsections. Why outer this, why outer that? So in verse 9 to 10 and 10, the editor first describes the teacher's person and work and follows up in verse 11 with a proverb. The proverb reads as follows, the sayings of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Notice that you have here what they call an inverted parallel. The sayings, A, of the wise are like goads, B, and like nails, B, goads, nails, B, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Sayings, again. So you see, this is the pattern that you have here in parallelism, A, B, B, A. In other words, inverted parallelism. A little later we will see synonymous or synthetic parallelism. So the inverted parallelism has two similes, like goads and like nails. Goads were used to keep cattle on the straight path. You know what goads are. Uh, Paul says, do not kick against the pricks. So those are the goads. And then the nails, there's a lot of discussion about that. What could that be? Some interpret that it, uh, those are the nails in the goad that make the animal move in the right direction. I think a better interpretation is to see two different similes here. Like nails, those are tent pegs. You put the tent pegs in, and that keeps the tent secure even in a storm. So those are the two ideas that I see in this one. 
And then in addition, the editor adds in verse 11 that are given by one shepherd, which is a metaphor. So the sayings of the wise keep you on the right track, it says, and it keeps you safe, secure in a storm. In verses 12 and 14, then, to 14, the editor opens the second subsection with another wyoter, which begins an instruction, a form, that's a, a wisdom form, instruction, and you can tell because it has an imperative. It tells you to do something. Beware. Of anything beyond these, my child, beware. And we've uh, already mentioned that the way I understand this, this includes the teaching of the teacher, not just uh, traditional proverbs. Of anything beyond these, my child, beware. And he follows this up with another proverb, as indicated by the parallelism, of making many books there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. Many books, A, no end, B, much study, A, weariness of the flesh, B. So this I, I would call synthetic parallelism, that is, the second line goes a little bit beyond the first, but you see clearly the parallelism. Uh, that's a sign of poetry or proverb. And finally, he sums up in verse 13, the end of the matter all has been heard, followed by two commands uh, he offers, uh, followed by two imperatives, fear God and keep his commandments. And for obeying these commands, he offers two motivations, reasons. The first is literally, for that is the whole of everyone. The word duty that you find in your uh, translations is not in the Hebrew. And then the second motivation is a reminder of God's judgment, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Uh, we look for repetition again because often that will point to what the author considers important. And we do that today too as a teacher. Uh, when you think something is important, you will repeat it, repeat it, so that people will catch on. And that's what the author does here too. He mentions God four times. You notice, fear God, for God will bring every deed into judgment in verse 13. And then twice implicitly, the one shepherd in 12, 11, and his, that's God's commandment, in uh, 1213. Further note the cluster of three imperatives in the second half of the epilogue. Beware, fear, keep. Then I think it's important, uh, after we've gotten the parameters of the text and we looked at some of the literary features, uh, that we should show the textual structure. How can you order that sort of logically? And I find that often helps me to get to the theme, the point of the passage. So this is the way I see the structure. Um, description of the teacher's person and works in verses 9 and 10. A, the teacher was wise. B, the teacher's activities. He taught the people knowledge. His work with existing proverbs, he weighed, he studied, and he arranged many proverbs. So he was working with traditional proverbs, and also he made some of his own. His work, com com composing his own proverbs, he sought to find pleasing words. He wrote words of truth plainly. Then comes a proverb 
The saying of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. We need the next page, page 11, please. Any questions on what I've been doing so far? So I'm just sort of taking you step by step through how I would approach a text before preparing the sermon. Now, in the book, I've tried to do as much of that preliminary work for you so that once you've checked my work and other commentaries, that you're ready to, to start writing the sermon. 11 at the top, uh, his second main point, verses 12 to 14, instruction. Three commands. Of anything beyond these, my child, beware. That's the first command. Then you have a motivational proverb, that is to say he gives the reason for bewaring in a proverb. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. And then two concluding commands in verse 13. Summation, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, followed by two motivations for that's the whole of, my, of everyone, and be for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I was thinking of asking you as teams to put your heads together and uh, come up with a theme. But I think in the interest of time, I'll just do this one myself, and then we'll work the next one maybe a little easier, uh, and then we can work on that together as teams. That is to say, whoever is sitting around a table, stick your head together, and then report back to the whole. Uh, <clears throat> the central message of the editor is found not in his description of the person and work of the teacher. Apparently, that was customary at that time that you would introduce the author uh, by telling a little bit about him, how wise he was, and, and what he did, and so on. It's the kind of thing that you find, yeah, they have something on the back of my book here, too. An endorsement kind of thing. They had that in the olden days already. Hey, this is not bad reading. Uh, just go for it. Uh, <laughs> that was a little commercial. Uh, at 55%, is it 55% discount? I get 40% discount, so <laughs> I'm going to buy a lot of books here. <laughs> anyway, his, uh, so what was customary in, uh, it, what is the central message then is his commands to his son, beware, fear, and keep. With his reference to the end of the matter in verse 13, the editor places the most weight on the latter of the two. Oops, I'm losing my earpiece there. Fear God and keep his commandments. And he underscores this by the following clause, for that is the whole duty, or the whole of everyone. The singular that in this clause means that these two commands, fear God and keep his commandments, are of a single value. So for the sake of formulating a single theme, the question now is how do these two, how these two imperatives are related? Fear God is the dominant theme. 
the editor mentions it first, and also the teacher himself has mentioned fearing God six times. Moreover, fearing God is the broader category. It describes one's attitude before God. As in Deuteronomy, the attitude of fearing God should result in the action of keeping his commandments. In addition, the editor motivates obedience to God's commands that by stating that this is the whole of everyone and that God will bring every deed into judgment. I think it's interesting that duty is missing there and that they've, I think the NIV has also added duty. Um, actually, it's a lot broader than that, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the whole of everyone that you fear God and keep his commandments. It, it makes you whole, really. This is what we were created for. So I think we can capture the highlights of his message in the following theme. Fear God, demonstrating it by keeping his commandments. And I think for a textual theme, we can leave it there with that kind of Old Testament language. But people today might misunderstand fear God. They might think that means be terrified of God, be afraid of God. And some commentators even take you into that direction. So for the Thurman theme, I would probably change that to revere God, demonstrating your reverence by keeping his commandments. Okay, and then we have to ask ourselves, what, what is the goal of the author? Why did he send this message to Israel? And the, I think there are two goals. First, to recommend the teacher's writings to the readers. And secondly, because these are commands, to urge them. He's not just encouraging them. He's not just comforting them. He is urging them to fear God, demonstrating this attitude by keeping his commandments. Maybe I should just take a little break here to show you uh, why it's important to distinguish the theme. Well, the theme, you know why it's important. We talked about that already. But why the goal is also important. So I'm, I always ask my students, okay, what is the theme of the author and what is the goal? Now, the goal is the purpose for which he writes or for teachers, the objective he has in mind. He wants his audience to respond in some way to that message. So if you write this goal down with an infinitive, in, case, in this case we did that to urge, them to do something, then from the goal you can get to the need. What was the question behind the text? In other words, he wants to urge them to fear God and keep his commandments. What's the need? Think of the battery again, the battery, the plus, the negative. The goal, the theme is the plus going into the need. People did not fear God sufficiently, did not keep his commandments. So often it's a lack of fearing God. Now I mentioned before that I, I, I was teaching my students when they prepare a sermon to begin with the need addressed. So then you can take this need, a lack of fearing God, and you say, okay, in the introduction to the sermon, I can show people with an illustration 
You see, you don't have to read the manuscript. When you have an illustration, a story, you can get away from the pulpit and just tell the story. Give an illustration of how people don't fear God today. In other words, how we live in a secular society. And then you can link that, so from the present, then you link that to, to the past, to Israel. That landed very gently, didn't it? Very nice. I got it back, I think. It might help to put a piece of tape on there, wouldn't it? I've never seen that, but uh, that's my invention. A little, <laughs> little piece of tape, that would just do it. Anyhow, we are with the introduction, the present, the past. And now you see, you have the present and the past together. People know what we are talking about. Now, when you start here, then, the body of the sermon, you expose the theme. And that will now hit home. One, two, three, whatever points you have. And then, the conclusion, you clinch the goal. In other words, bring it home. Show people how they ought to fear God and keep his commandments today. So that, I think, is, you see, you always struggle with how to make a sermon relevant throughout. Many sermons are objective exposition, subjective application. I think our challenge is to make a sermon that is relevant throughout. And this, is, I think, is the way to do it. And nobody's ever told me that it wasn't. So, for your benefit. Um, that's what I'm talking about with the goals. Now then, the ways to, to preach Christ. Uh, there's no, pr no promise of Christ here. Um, so, the best ways to move to Jesus Christ in the New Testament are redemptive historical progression, typology, analogy, and longitudinal themes supported by New Testament references. We have a lot of choices here. I'll show them to you, how that would work. I don't think I would use all of them in a sermon. That is overkill. So you just pick the best ways. As you're writing the sermon, often, you know, you, sometimes even you get a different uh, way that you had not considered before. But redemptive historical progression would work this way. The editor motivated his readers to fear God and keep his commandments, because God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing. You might as well pass out the next page. The New Testament reveals that God sent his son Jesus to bear God's judgment for us. Since the penalty has been paid, those who believe in Jesus need no longer dread God's judgment. You see how there is movement forward then in terms of the motivation in redemptive history. Here it was fear God, because God will judge every deed. After Christ has come, he has borne the penalty. And so that is no longer our motivation for fearing God. Moreover, Jesus says that he will be the judge in the final judgment. He said, top of page 12, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, 
and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. So you see, as, as Christians, we should no longer be motivated to keep God's commandments because we fear him, because we fear his judgment. After Jesus' death and resurrection, we seek to revere God and keep his commandments, not because we dread the coming judgment, but because we are grateful for God's grace in providing salvation for us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's redemptive historical progression. The motivation there was the judgment is coming, therefore you better fear him, keep his commandments. In the New Testament, it's out of gratitude that we keep God's commandments. You see, if, if you would preach this passage only in its Old Testament setting, you would not be preaching the whole gospel. You might get people to fear God and keep his commandments, but the motivation would be wrong. The motivation changes in the New Testament. And the Bible is one whole. You can't just preach this. Then you have an Old Testament sermon. We want a Christian sermon. Typology. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, speaks of the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. Now, many commentaries say that that shepherd is God. God has given the wisdom sayings, the collected sayings. It's inspired by God. Now, the phrase, one shepherd, is used only three times in the Old Testament. Once here in Ecclesiastes, and twice in Ezekiel. And it's interesting, in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 34 and 37, the Lord promises Israel a glorious future under one shepherd, my servant David, who shall be their prince forever. Now, assuming that the editor of Ecclesiastes had these passages in mind, his reference to one shepherd would function as a type of the coming Davidic shepherd king. You see, the New Testament identifies Jesus not only as another King David, uh, in Matthew 1, for example, the three times 14, you recall, uh, 14 from whatever to David, it was from Abraham to David, 14. 14 is the number of, uh, the Hebrew number of D-V-D, David. So he ends up with David. Then it goes down to the exile, 14. But there's another David coming, 14, Jesus, the son of David. So Matthew 14 very clearly, uh, Matthew 1 very clearly uh, shows that Jesus is the son of David. But also Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus himself said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And Jesus, as our shepherd, of course, has given us many parables, much wisdom. Think of the parables about the kingdom. Think about the parables of how we ought to live our life. Um, but when you're writing the sermon, you may think, well, this way of typology may be okay, but it, it gets a little too complicated for the congregation. 
So I'm thinking maybe I, I wouldn't go in that direction. I'd have to go back to Ezekiel, explain that, and so on. It gets fairly complicated. If it's a study group, it's one thing, but I might just skip over this way. There are many more ways left, right? The, the other way to go is longitudinal themes. You can trace the theme, fear God, demonstrating it by keeping his commandments, from the Old Testament to Jesus Christ in the New. Deuteronomy especially connected fearing God with keeping his commandments. Moses said, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him. That's interesting. Love is included in the fear of God, to love him. In the New Testament, Jesus also emphasizes that the fear or the awe of God includes love for God. In summarizing God's commandments, Jesus places our, first our love for God and then for our neighbor. And Jesus also links our love for him with keeping his commandments. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And again, they who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. So you see, there are various ways to go. Yep, thank you, uh, Jeff and company. There are, uh, I, I think probably I would go the way of redemptive historical progression for one. That is fairly straightforward. And, oh, I skipped over analogy, didn't I? And none of you warned me that I was making a major mistake here. I am being set up. Okay, analogy. We'll go back to the middle of page 12. Analogy can often be linked to the goal of the author. As the editor of Ecclesiastes urged his readers to keep God's commandments, so did Jesus. When the rich young man asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life, Jesus answered, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And Jesus also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I think, you know, looking at this now, I would probably start with the way of analogy, because a lot of people today, Christians, say, well, Christ kept the law for us. We don't have to do it anymore. Well, Jesus very clearly says, just like the teacher, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And he also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then move back to redemptive historical progression. We don't keep the commandments because we fear the judgment, but because we love Christ and do it out of gratitude for his work. The, the way of longitudinal themes is also possible. The danger there is that the congregation will sort of get bored and tune out, especially if you do it in too much detail. So you ought to work through some of these ways and then select the strongest ones. Any, any questions on this passage? Yes. Yes, the, the motivation clearly in Ecclesiastes is to fear God because he will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so the judgment there is used as a stick to persuade people to keep the commandments. 
And I know that preachers still, some preachers still do that today, but I think that's not the New Testament teaching anymore. That's an Old Testament sermon. Christ has, has paid the penalty for the judgment. He is the judge. And he clearly says, and I had a verse uh, to that effect, that we need not fear the judgment. Um, Jesus said, I have it at the top of page 12, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. All it takes is faith in Jesus, and you have eternal life, and he does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. So it's no longer the fear of the judgment that is not there for Christians. Why then keep the commandments? Because we love Christ. Yeah? And I use that text. Yes? That's an interesting, uh, interesting question. Uh, my field is not evangelism, but it's, it seems to me that people do not respond well to threatening them with judgment. I think they respond much better to, to love. And so I think I, I would not go the, the direction of, of the Old Testament in this case uh, by threatening them with God's judgment, which they probably don't believe anyway because they don't believe in God, and so they don't believe in a coming judgment. They live just for the here and now, and then death. It's almost like uh, Ecclesiastes on the horizontal level. And so I, I would... I'm not sure that you can use uh, this particular text too well for evangelistic purposes. Some of you are into evangelism. What do you say? I was just thinking about observation. Where does the reality of hell then fit into the scheme of trying to force someone who is lost to become a God follower? I mean, that's what very much seems to me to be the road of potential judgment, which they stand to pay for their own sin, even though we understand the love of God has been manifested in Christ. Yeah, I, I appreciate what you say, and in Grand Rapids, of course, with the Reverend Bell's uh, writing about hell, uh, there are major uh, contributions in the Grand Rapids press on that issue. Uh, and there, there have been some good ones. Uh, one person wrote in, uh, you know, the Reverend Bell doesn't seem to believe in, in hell, or that anyone will be in hell, let's put it that way. Uh, and this person wrote in that of all people in the Bible that mention hell most often, Jesus. Um, and it struck me too, how can you get around the fact that the Bible so clearly talks about a hell, and, and you just say, well, either there is no hell or, or no one will be in it, and you wonder too, what's the use of a hell? But I still question you see, unbelievers don't believe in hell either. 
And so I don't see how you can use that as a motivator. Okay. Okay. If if that is is indeed the case, then I think you do have a motivating factor there. We have a few more, Jeff. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, it's, uh, we were, t I was talking with the president of Calvin Seminary the other day and about a particularly good preacher. And uh, the president said, you know, she trusts the word. And I think that's very important that we trust the biblical word to do its job, that the Holy Spirit will take that and make it work, bear fruit. We cannot do that on our own. We can just present the word and then the Holy Spirit will have to water and nurture the growth. Um, yes, sir. Okay. Okay, that's a, that's a good comment, yes. They've asked that we use the microphone so they can hear us in the other room for the questions. Uh, I think the distinction that has to be made is that you don't have to avoid the judgment in the passage, but <clears throat> if, if you're preaching to motivate someone and, and you don't clearly make that link, then what, what you've done is you've placed a burden on that congregation that none of us who understand grace are willing to bear ourselves, which is that, if you have people thinking that 
through their fear of God, that if they keep those commandments, that that's how they're going to have God's favor upon them, then, then you've, you've missed the entire point of the Old Testament, pointing them to the fact that Christ has done that for us. So I don't, I don't know that we need to avoid talking about the judgment in, in the sermon, but we can't, we can't leave it there. I think you have to, as someone over there said, you have, to, you have to lay that foundation and then show how God has resolved it in Christ. Because otherwise, what you're going to do is either leave people two alternatives. Either they're going to become a hypocrite thinking that they are fulfilling the law, or they're going to be under terrible anxiety because they're realizing that they can't. Okay, good. How much uh, time? When do we quit? Is that all? No more discussion. I have a whole text to go through. It, I, I appreciate the discussion. Uh, carry on over lunch or whatever you want to do. Uh, but I have one more text to go through. And you notice that I'm a stickler for staying with my time. Uh, e Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 16. We need uh, the table back there. Uh, is the microphone back there? Could you have those people there read 4? Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 16. Then I, un then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all, all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave, and, and boy, bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is heavy, heavy travail. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone, and when he falls, he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep him warm. I like that one. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was, a, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been, he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was, in, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Okay, thank you. Um, it may be a little hard to absorb what the text is saying immediately. Uh, if something goes over your head, you might want to reread it later. But Ecclesiastes 4, 7 begins a new unit with its, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Uh, this unit is about the toil of solitary individuals, and it concludes 
at verse 8, with the inclusio, this also is vanity and an unhappy business. You see, vanity, vanity. The book ends again. So that is one unit. Uh, one could select this subunit as a preaching text, but the next unit, uh, so in other words, you could conclude uh, preach on 4, 7, and 8, but the next unit about the value of having a companion, 9 through 12, complements the first about the solitary individual. So it's tempting, therefore, to select as preaching text just verses 7 to 12. But the problem is that that leaves 13 to 16 an orphan. And verse 16 ends the unit chasing after wind. Uh, remember, we saw that from Wright's scheme, that there are these six units in the first half of the book that end with chasing after wind. Also, the language of verses 13 and 16 is similar to 7 and 12. Uh, for example, verse six, 13 has, better is a poor but wise youth. You find that word better in verses 6 and 9 also. Verse 16, there was no end to all. You find that same phrase in verse 8. And verse 16 has vanity, as do verses 7 and 8. Moreover, verse 16 ends the larger unit with the, this also is vanity and it's chasing after wind. And then 5.1 begins a new unit on a different topic, namely worship in the temple. So we look for repetition. The word vanity is repeated three times, as is toil, twice in verse 8 and once in verse 9. But the primary key words in this passage, as you may have heard, was the, the numbers 1 and 2, or second. The teacher uses 1 five times, and 2, or second, Six times. In verse 8, solitary is, in the Hebrew, not a second. So it's about the numbers. One, two, textual structure. He begins with an observation and reflection. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Under the sun, remember, at the horizontal level. He has an anecdote there of one who is without a second, without sons or brothers. Yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. He questions, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? And the conclusion is, this also is vanity and an unhappy business. There's the first subunit. You see the inclusio, vanity, vanity. Then he adds a proverb, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up the other, but woe to one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? In my first church, I had uh, bridal couples select their own wedding text. I would preach on it, and one couple selected this text. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? It's not particularly a wedding text. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I, did, I did manage to preach on it for them, but I explained it had not, little to do with, with marriage, but with friendship. In the cold there in Palestine, when you were caught outside, you shared each other's warmth. Okay, three. Two will withstand one, and note the reversal. I'm at first, verse 12b here, though one might prevail against another, and that's 12a. Concluding proverb, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
Uh, notice in uh, 4 verse uh, 12 how you have the 1, 2, 3 together. But because I reversed it, you did not uh, see that. Uh, verse 12, 4, 12. And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A threefold cord, so it goes from one to two to three. Um, anyway, that's just a little aside. Third, the point proverb, better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who will no longer take advice. advice. An anecdote supporting the proverb, for one can come out of prison to reign even though born poor in the kingdom. All the living follow that youth who replaced the king. There was no end to all those people whom he led. Then the brevity of political fame, those who come later, uh, could you pass out the next page, please? Those who come later will not rejoice in him. Conclusion, surely this also is vanity and a chasing after wind. Uh, I was going to have you think about and talk about the theme, but we're running a little short on time, so I will do the next uh, page myself. Just the, This is the last page, and we have, again, Jeff, seven minutes. Exactly. A complete period of time to complete page 14, you notice. Very important. I'm into uh, Daniel now, so I'm very much aware of these numbers. 7, 10, 100, 144,000, and so on. Okay, the textual theme and goal. The selected preaching text contains three subunits. So I'm approaching it now from the point of view of the subunits. The overall structure of the text is a simple chiasm, A, B, A, with a focal point on B. Notice, anecdote of a solitary rich man person whose life is vanity. Then B, a proverb. Two are better than one. And then uh, A prime, anecdote of a popular king whose life is vanity. So showing that chiastic structure gives you a hint. The emphasis lies on B, the focal point of that text. The teacher also shows that he intends to emphasize B by supporting the proverb, two is better than one, with no less than three illustrations, you may have noticed. And so we could formulate the theme of this passage simply as two are better than one. But this does not include the isolation experienced by the rich man, A, and the king, B, A, A prime, that's the two bookends. And so to cover this emphasis, we can formulate the textual theme as follows. Since working alone is futile, we ought to cooperate with others. The teacher's goal can be discerned by linking the theme with the historical circumstances behind the text. These circumstances were an economy that was driven by selfish individualism. People competed with each other out of envy of one another, 4-4. In that setting, the teacher wants his readers to cooperate with others. Since he uses three telling illustrations to support his point, his goal is to persuade, not just to encourage his readers, but to persuade them, to convince them, not to go it alone, but to cooperate with others. A tremendous text for our individualistic society, I should think. Ways to preach Christ. 
The best ways, I think, uh, to Christ in the New Testament are longitudinal themes and analogies supported by New Testament references. Longitudinal themes. In paradise, God declared, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. Genesis 2.18. God created humans as social beings. They are made to work together and help each other. God gave Israel many laws requiring care for the neighbor, the climax being, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus. The teacher echoed this law in Ecclesiastes 4 by calling solitary, level, solitary living vanity or futile, useless, and by illustrating that two are better than one. And Jesus acknowledged this wisdom by gathering disciples around him and sending them out, out two by two. Jesus also reiterated the love commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We can also use analogy between uh, the teacher's teaching and that of Jesus. Like the Old Testament teacher, Jesus urged cooperation with others. The love commandment, love your neighbor as yourself in Matthew 22. Jesus also opposed greed, a form of selfishness that isolates one from, from another. Jesus warned, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus' parable of the rich fool is similar to the anecdote about the rich man. The rich fool also had ample goods laid up for many years. And notice he also had no companion, no second one, with whom to share his wealth. For God said to him, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Apparently he has no son who will inherit his stuff. Similar then to Ecclesiastes 4.8, for whom am I toiling? He has no second. When Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. The neighbor was the one who showed him mercy. Jesus clinched his point, go and do likewise. And Jesus also instructed his followers, if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. So here you have uh, at least two ways to go, longitudinal themes, analogy. You may even want to pick some of that so that you don't overdo the Christocentric move. Uh, but then I think of primary importance with these moves is to back it up with New Testament references, New Testament evidence. We have uh, two minutes for a quick, quick discussion or questions, comments. that you mentioned earlier? In other words, you said there was three different ways, I think, in your definition to preach Christ in the Old Testament, his person, his work, or his teaching. This would be uh, more the third? This is very much, uh, yes. It's, it's focused on the teaching of Jesus. Uh, I don't see how with this text you could get to the work of Jesus or the person of Jesus, but clearly in terms of the teaching it is there. And that's why, you know, I, I made that definition before I wrote the book on preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes. 
I broadened that in Preaching Christ from the Old Testament because I could see that with wisdom literature, which usually has no promise of the coming Christ, which has no type usually of Christ, so it doesn't really deal too much with his person and work, that this is the way to go. But we have to get from the Old Testament text to Jesus in the New Testament. That's the important thing that I'm trying to inculcate the, the words of Spurgeon. Once you have the text, once you have the message, the theme, and now what is the way to Christ? I'd like you to struggle with that. On that note, we'll dismiss everyone, and some of you I will see again tonight and others tomorrow morning. All right, well, that does it for the pre-conference. Thanks again for coming. Um, the bookstore staff is really excited, so they're going to stay open until 4.30, and I'll tell you why they're excited, because they are able to offer Professor Gradonis's books at 55% off. So as he said earlier, he doesn't even get that deep of a discount. <laughs> so I would encourage you to head over there and uh, take advantage of that. And our general uh, conference will kick off tonight at 7, so we'll see you at 7.